All right, how are we? That was good. Let's thank them again for leading us. Yep. Matthew chapter 5, if you brought a Bible with you, if you picked up a house Bible, the page number is on the screen, 671. Uh, that's where we'll be today. Uh, we won't move much from that, and so uh, if you will. I want to explain to you the reason that there's a dent in the painting behind me. Maybe you've already been wondering that. Has anybody had discussions about that? The painting was on the floor this past week so the artists could come in and do what they do in secret, and I came to work Thursday morning. I had an early meeting, and when I got here, it was still dark, and I pulled up on the porch. That's staff parking, by the way. Uh, well, you either park there or you get booted, you know, so we've had to work out creative ways to uh, keep our cars, but anyway, I parked up on the porch. The front door was open and propped, so... I walked in with my iPhone flashlight app, (laughs) which is only good for you will see the knife coming at you just in time to know that it's coming at you. That's that's as far as that goes. I downloaded that application like, oh, this answers all my problems. And it's like, wait, okay, now I can see it. All right. So I'm walking around and I get about halfway in this room and I think, you know what? I think I'm going to go back outside because all the lights are turned on in another part of the building. Uh, so I get back outside and I call the police. Now, at 5.45 in the morning in Buckhead, the police are, um, they're bored because they got here so fast and they were screeching into the parking lot. The cars were leaning as they turned and it was like, they're going to be highly disappointed. And so they come up onto the porch, they got their flashlights drawn and this going on. And I said, hang on, let me unlock the door for you. And so we walked in, and I told them what had happened. Well, they start working themselves around the building, and they look in every closet, every room, and so I finally go and turn the lights on. Well, we all reconvene in here, kind of near the painting, and the policeman stepped on the painting, and his coworker was like, hey, you're on the painting. So I thought, maybe... Maybe you should go look again in the building because if you're if you missed the 36 square foot <laughs> painting that's sitting in front of you, I'm pretty sure that you missed the ninja who's hiding in the corner in all black with a sword. Like that's why we have a dent on the painting. I'm surprised he didn't go through it because he was a he was a stout fellow. But uh, anyway, are you there? That's the end of the sermon, by the way. Don't. Step on the painting. All right, Matthew chapter 5. We're in the second week of a series that doesn't have a title, but we've given a word to each week. And last week the word was transform. And this series is about what the way of Jesus does, both in us and through us. And we chose the word transform, which was an addition to the series late in the game. But we wanted to talk deeply about God's work first inside of us, and then we'll talk about how God uses us. Now, we often get those backwards. We wonder, how will God use me? How will God place me in the world, and what will He do with me? And I said it a few times last week. I'll repeat it. God's first interest isn't what you do, but who you are. And so even at the crossroads of like incredible opportunities to make an impact in the world, God cares less about which way you go and first and more about who you are 
in those moments. And so we talked about transformation last week, which is a very heavy topic. If you weren't here, I basically sat in a chair up here and said, look, this is a difficult conversation to have. And we talked about how in the relationship with God, that there must be this then and now component, like where this is how I am now, but it's not like I was then. And when I was back there in my then, that was my now, and before that there was a then. And there's this progression of growth and transformation. And the scripture we used was Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, but in verse 2 it says, be transformed. And the way the Greek reads there is that it's a continual transformation. It's not a moment where you are transformed and that's the end of your discipleship, but there's consistent growth and journey. And so we talked about that, and we had cards on every seat. We've taped them to the stage, and our instructions were, which some of you broke the rules, but that's okay. The instructions were, just write down two words, your then and your now. And the now was not like arrival perfection. It was just, this is where I am right now. And so some of the cards show great progression in spiritual growth, and then some show uh, the, the opposite, because that's what life is. It's real, it's happening, and sometimes we go forward, sometimes we go backwards. And so as I was taping these cards to the stage this week, it was very interesting to read each one and to imagine uh, which ones were yours. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> mm, that's got to be her. Um, no, but just to lay them out so that you can see, as you come up and take the Lord's Supper today, you will see essentially shorthand stories of how God is working. And as a pastor, it's important for me to remind you that He is working. Amen? Because it's so easy to come here and sing and just be religious and forget the fact that God is at work in us. And so this, again, is just a mosaic of, of stories, short stories of what God's doing. And so that was last week, transform. Uh, this week we're talking about the word dwell. It comes from a famous statement that Jesus made, uh, and we'll do the salt and the light teachings this week and next week. Today we're going to talk about salt. Has anybody ever heard you're the salt of the earth before? Have you heard this? Oh yeah, okay, okay. Uh, amen, we're done. The, uh, this is only the second time I've ever preached on this verse. The first time was last hour. So this, it's rusty, all right? I've never... I've taught, I've had discussions about it, I've written materials about it, but I've never gotten up and, and done this. So um, let's pray, and then we're just going to walk through it together. Father, thank you for the truth that you change us, and that's your goal for us, that we, we continue to transform, and that we are allowing you to do that. And we pray as a church that you also continually transform us into the, the community of faith that you desire. And as I look out in this room each and every week, it's a constant reminder that you are transforming us. And so we just, we lift up today's time to you as we look at what it means to be salt in the earth, in our world, that you'll just open up the doors of understanding and we'll just be excited about living this out. And it's in your name that I pray, and everyone said with great enthusiasm, amen. Okay, well, that's good. All right, here we go. The word is dwell. That's our word today. That the way of Jesus isn't somewhere else, but it's here among us. We're coming up on the Christmas season, and the word Emmanuel simply means God with us. So God is a God of with, and the word dwell fits 
very nicely with this text. Let's follow along as I read it. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. It's not a command. It's a description of who you are. You are, Jesus says, the salt of the earth. But it gets negative from here. But if the salt loses its saltiness, which I think isn't chemically possible, but they didn't know that then because it was the first century. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? He then says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, in the ancient Palestinian neighborhoods, your oven was outside, your stove was outside, and it would typically sit on some tiles, and underneath the tiles was a thick layer of salt. It just helped in the fire and the tile and all that. When the salt was used up, burned up, done, they would remove the stove, remove the tiles, and they would take the salt, and they would throw it into the street, which would get what? Trampled by men and women and children and anything that walked by. And so Jesus is saying something that happens. If the salt loses its function, basically, then it's just thrown out into the street and it just gets walked over by men. Now, it's a very negative statement about us. If we lose whatever it is that we are supposed to bring, then Jesus is saying you're essentially useless. And so he says with great a, a great positive vibe, you are the salt of the earth, but there's a warning here too that you have potential to lose touch with what that, with what that means. Now, if I say the salt of the earth, you automatically assume if I say, Heather, you're the salt of the earth, you would think that, okay, that's a compliment. Is it not? It isn't. Okay. It's a compliment, all right? Because if I say you're salt on an open wound, that's a different kind of, right? And so to hear that you are the salt of the earth or to say someone is the salt of the earth is clearly a compliment. And in those days, a, a very, a great compliment. But at the very least, we understand a few things, even if we don't understand what Jesus is saying already, we understand a few things. One, we understand that this has something to do with influence and impact, that when salt is around, when salt is on stuff, it makes an impact. Is anybody guilty of like when your friends go to the bathroom at the restaurant, you pour salt in their Coke or whatever? You ever do that? See, I was in youth ministry for 15, 16 years. You fight to stay alive, all right? kid messed with me on the van. He went to the bathroom. He got a lot of salt in his Coke. All right, that's how it worked. And when they drink the Coke or eat the steak that you've embedded with salt, they know immediately that, okay, this, there's salt. Does this make sense? So when salt is around, it's noticeable. And so to hear that you are salt of the earth is to say without knowing anything else that, okay, that's, there's a clear distinction there. When salt is present, everybody understands that. But if you listen at another level with our text in play, like you're the salt of the earth, but there's potential that you could lose touch with that, what you hear is whatever salt is, our world must need it because Jesus is saying you're the salt of the earth. So whatever the salt is that he's talking about, the earth needs it. And two, whatever it is that our world needs, I must be bringing it. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus does not say you should be, you ought to be. If you would just return to that, you are the salt of the earth. 
And whatever I'm bringing has the potential to fade away. There's a potential that I might lose touch with it. I might lose touch with what the world is needing and what I'm supposedly bringing. And so when Jesus looked at these people and said, you're the salt of the earth, there is something that his world and our world needed, and these people had it and perhaps didn't know it. And so he's telling them all over again or telling them for the first time. And it's like a mission statement. You're the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. It's not a command, again, it's a description of the kind of person that you and I were created to be, and there's this chance that we could lose it and forget about it. Now, one of the great things about this teaching and the light teaching that follows it is that Jesus gives no detailed instruction on how you are to be salt of the earth. He just says it, you're the salt of the earth. And so, There's a certain amount of freedom for us to discuss. You only need one question if you're in a small group for this one. What does it mean to be salt of the earth? That could last all night. And sometimes when Jesus taught, this was the point, to create discussion. It's really the main purpose of the sermon, just to generate good discussion. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the listeners in the first century standing in front of him would have left with so much to talk about and to consider. What, what did Jesus mean? What, what does that mean? I don't, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? How does that look? Is, that, what, is he crazy? What is he talking about? You're the salt of the earth. But a few things were very, very understood uh, about the word salt in those days. Let's explore that just for a moment. If you'll look with me to the beginning of chapter 5, it helps to know who Jesus is speaking to. And it says in verse 1, now when he saw the crowds, this is Jesus, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples, these are, this is his audience, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So he's speaking to uh, followers of, of him. And then he runs through this list that maybe you've heard before, but he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now the word poor, at this point in history, the word is tokos, and it had grown to mean that you've got nothing except God. It's a term of poverty at the worst level. So he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritual zeros, they have nothing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So those who are scrambling for any sort of spiritual health, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, like there's a sadness over the world and the way things are, but there's also a sadness about ourselves. The person who mourns is also mournful of his own contribution to the decay of the world. Jesus said, you, that person, is the salt of the earth. And the meek, because that's a powerful word, isn't it? Blessed are the meek in the midst of the Roman Empire, which is not meek. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, which is, to a first century leader, that's, that can't, no one inherits anything if you are meek. You must be powerful and strong and forceful. But Jesus says, no, the meek are the salt of the earth. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... For, right, for things to be right in the world, but also for things to be right in their own life. So we have this picture of a person who is, again, scrambling for sort of 
anything that will make his life right in the eyes of God, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. I don't know if you're catching the pattern yet, but basically all of us who don't have it all together, Jesus is still saying, you are the salt of the earth. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and even those who are persecuted, Jesus says, you, this is the crowd that he's speaking to, that you are the salt of the earth. And so the mournful, the hungry, the meek, spiritual zeros, it was to those people, the social and spiritual bottom of society, that he said these words. He's speaking to a crowd of of Palestinian peasants and saying, you, you're the salt. So this is not about being Mother Teresa, although clearly she was the salt of a place on earth. This is about every type of person, every kind of person, all of us. Jesus is reminding us of who we were created to be, not telling us what to do, but reminding us of who we are. Now, some historians will say that there were thousands of uses for salt in the ancient days, from money to currency to trade uh, to obviously flavor. But what Jesus is going for here is a use for salt that we all could probably guess, and it's preservation. It preserves something. It keeps something alive. They would rub salt into meat so that it would stay fresh longer. It doesn't cure it. It eventually does go bad, but it stays alive a little bit longer. And so when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, it doesn't mean that you're the cure for the world's problems, but you can slow them down. Because there will be a day when it all comes to a close and everything is made new again and everything is reborn. You know, the scriptures promise this, but until then, his church, his people, his followers can slow down the decay. I mean, is that heavy? It's a very heavy, at least when I think about it. And so let me just speak to that for just a moment. As I said a second ago, the scriptures are very clear that God is at work in our world. He's editing our world one life at a time. He's changing and recreating all things, including you and me. And what's most humbling about God's work that He is doing is that He has invited you and me to help. Now, we're not in the business of saving people's souls. That's something only God can do. But His work here on earth to be his hands and his feet, he's asked us to do that. You are the salt of the earth. Let me tell you some things you already know. And you can amen, write on, whatever you want to do with these, just so I know I'm on the right track here. Number one is that life is pretty hard. Amen? Okay, good. Uh, number two, there's pain in our world. Are we, okay, good. Without community, number three, without relationships, people can end up very alone in their pain. Is this true? Jesus... And the scriptures promise today when heaven will crash into earth, making all things new, and all things will be as they were intended to be, restored, renewed, and perfect. Now we long for that day. You and I look forward to that day. We sing about that day. We pray about that day. When we stand and sing in this room, many times the songs are just about that day. And yet, Jesus also instructed us to pray these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
That's a new set of eyes if you've never thought of it this way. That's not the bluegrass music theology of escapism where I just hold on until the next life. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And that's true. It's not your ultimate home. But when Jesus says the words, or when He teaches that at the end of our days, if we are faithful to Him, He will say to us, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. Which implies there's something that I must be doing until, until that day. So until that day comes, He says, You are the salt of the earth. You're the hands and the feet of God in this world, and you're holding up unrest and and decay, and you're bringing peace, and you're keeping alive His love and His grace until that day comes. So the church has a role to play. The church becomes the salt of the earth. And so when we hear this, what we hear is Jesus saying that All of us are to stand in the way of decay and to be in the places where God's work is needed. And what may surprise you is that those places are not just around the world in desperate regions, although they are, but they're also sitting in the cubicle next to you. They're cleaning the school that you teach in. They're the barista that remembers your coffee order every day that you go into Starbucks. They live next door to you, above you, or below you. It's the person that's paying you. I know that that's not what you want to hear, but it's your boss. Or it's the person you're paying. It's working for you. They're teaching your kids, both in school and here at church. Do you know these people? And I'm asking this question after I spent months asking this question in preparation for this series. Do I know these people? Do I know the people that are standing and working and living right in front of me? And beneath the surface of all those examples of people, and the list is long, there are endless needs for community and support and hope and the love and the grace of God. But you and I can never know what those are unless we know who those people are. I mean, it's one thing And my closet's full of these, so don't hear this in the wrong way. But it's one thing to buy a pair of Tom's shoes and to feel good about that because a kid across the world gets shoes because you bought shoes and he puts shoes on feet that don't have shoes. That's a good thing. It's a great thing. I call it ministry at a distance, which the church in the Scriptures is called to be a part of. That the church is to sort of look outward. It's a way for the Uh, for the world to weigh in and get involved from every angle. God asks the church, look, get involved in the global effort. It's why we believe in supporting mission work around here. It's why, what, three weeks ago, two, two Sundays ago or whatever, we took up a big offering as we do every year and we give it away to missionaries in our city and around the world. Nearly $45,000 we gave away two weeks ago. So we believe in that. We send people across the ocean. I, uh, I got an email last night, our friends that he plays bass here, his wife helps out with children, uh, Adam and Christy Black, they're in Kenya working on some mission work right now. He said, I'm going to send you pictures so you can show the church. Now, I'm not showing you because the pictures are of um, just like a dirt road. 
I was like, I wanted pictures of y'all. You know, like, I could get that off Google. So they're good, though. I'll show them to you later, now that you're angry because I didn't show you. But that's okay. So we're about that. So don't hear me say that we're not about that. We're completely involved in that. But if I had to put the two side by side, ministry at a close distance or ministry at a far distance, I would say that it's more difficult for me to get personal and live out the ways of Jesus with the people I already know. It's much more difficult because I can hold it together overseas for five days or I can throw money at something across the world. That's one thing and it's a good thing, but it's harder to live it out with the people you know and love and struggle with. Jesus said, a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown. It goes both ways. He's not welcome in his hometown, practically speaking, because he's grown up, he's now a prophet, and the neighborhood says, I remember when you broke my window with a rock when you were a kid. I don't, you have no credibility with me. Does this make sense? It's hard for people. When I hear people going back to their home church to be youth ministers and stuff, I'm like, could be tough because you were an idiot in ninth grade and uh, no one will believe you when you stand up and say things. That's why I stay as far away from my home church as I can because we used to steal the communion bread and eat it in the kitchen. It was good. It was really good. It's different. We have the little chiclets that break your teeth, but my home church, it was like hand-kneaded bread. It was nice. Uh, it's okay. It's not a sin. I'm hoping. Uh, but if a prophet is at welcome in his hometown, is also to say that the people who know us the most, we have a very difficult time sharing the love and the grace of God. We just do. I've, I've in my time in ministry, I have seen marriages uh, come apart at the seams. But one of the one of the spouses might be heavily involved in ministry, and yet he or she can't do that at home. Oh, all the kids love them. They've been on every mission trip. They play in the band. I don't know. You just put in the, fill it in. But the very people that he or she lives with had no respect for them. And it was much harder for them to live these things out in their own context. So I would say that it's more difficult. And yet, this is what Jesus calls us to do, to dwell in those places. That the way of Jesus is residential. It, it's happening where you are. And it needs to be in places where the love and the grace and the hope of God is needed. That you and I bring peace to the world. So Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. I have a friend who's gearing up to plant a church. Um, I can't tell you his name. You might know him. That's a joke. You don't know him. Okay. But he just got back from a week-long church planting orientation, which is where they basically poke you and prod you. I've been to it. And they just make sure you're not crazy. That's pretty much it. Is he sane? Okay. We don't want to give him resources if he's crazy. When we talked last week about where he might end up, like what city, what town, what state, whatever, because you basically pray about that and decide, and then they get behind you and support you. I actually tried to hire him here, but he wouldn't hear of it, so we're kind of friends now. But 
nevertheless, I'm talking to him on the phone, and we're, he's unfolding um, where he might like to go. And, and I randomly said, have you thought about Boston? I said, because I, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, I've read that that is like the least churched city in America. And yet, most of our future world leaders are in school there, right? So he says, and I quote, I want to read the quote, dude, why did you say Boston? I said, don't know, just sounded good. He said, my wife and I have talked about that city. Ooh. I don't like those situations, so I moved on. <laughs> but it was cool, and the thing is, and we talked further, whatever he ends up doing and wherever he ends up going, it will be a place, a city, a town, a suburb, a farming community, wherever, where there are people that he, his family, and his church will serve. Now, every church runs the risk of doing a couple things. One, it runs the risk of losing vision uh, about the community that's right around them. There's a passage in the Old Testament that gets used for a lot of different things, and it, it's okay because it seems to be wide open, but it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. That seems to be true. If you're wandering aimlessly, there's a chance that you will die and decay and lose purpose. And so a church runs the risk of, and we run this same risk of, forgetting that we are sitting in this part of Atlanta for a reason. And we have a phrase that is on our website, and it says, uh, in the city, for the city. Now just so you know, a city is not buildings. A city is people. Buildings are a part of a city, but a city is not a grid. A city is people. When the Bible talks about the new heaven and the new earth, it describes it as a perfectly functioning city. And a city is made up of you and me. And a city is really, especially here in Atlanta, this mix of all these different kinds of people from different backgrounds. And so when we say we're here for the city, we're in the city for the city, it's about the people. It's about what we are able to do and how we are able to serve here in the city. It's why we do serve the city. I know you get, you get to hear this all the time when it gets ready to register for the next round of serve the city, but it's why we do it. It's a built-in way for you to connect uh, with the city. But you don't have to do those things. They're just suggestions, and we're partnered with them, and they help us, and we help them, and you know we feel like they're good options. But the cool thing is, in our church here, we get stories all the time from small groups that are just coming up with their own ways of doing stuff in the city. It's not, they're not on the list, but we hear of groups building homes, cleaning people's homes, making sandwiches for homeless people, and the list goes on and on and on. We didn't sanction that. We didn't have a meeting and vote, okay, we can make sandwiches for homeless, but not this month, but maybe the next month. We don't do that. We just give you some things that say, look, if you're just looking for a way to connect with the city, here's six or eight different things coming up in the next few weeks. But it's really... The ideal situation would be that you just come up with that as you do life, and you listen for ways that you can connect. Does that make sense? It's just, it's why we do the things that we do, to make sure that we don't, as Jesus said, lose the saltiness. Now, 
One final reminder, and then I want to just close with a challenge. God is working and has invited you and I to join Him. Uh, He's finished, by the way, according to the Scriptures, as best I can read them. God's finished sending covenants with people, prophets, angels with birth announcements of a coming Savior. Those appear to be finished and has reminded us through the teachings of Jesus and all through the letters in the New Testament that we are now His hands and feet in the world and that we are the salt of the earth, that you and I are plan A and there isn't a plan B and plan A is a bad plan. But it's the plan God came up with to leave His work in our hands. And He promises us, as He promised the disciples, His final words to the disciples, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you here alone. I'll be with you. But it's up to you. It's up to you to take the message of love and grace to all the nations. It's up to you to work with the poor and to restore their lives. It's up to you to figure out how you become This, the salt and light to the people you work with, the people that teach your kids, the people that are around you in your building, that's up to you. There's freedom in that. I don't have a list. You're the salt of the earth, and here's the six things. There's no list. You create. You join God in this recreating of the earth and the slowing down of decay and decline and unrest. You you take care of that, and when I return, I'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's a chance that you can lose it There's a chance that you get thrown out. There's an old Anabaptist uh, tradition (laughs) where if someone uh, left the church and just went wild, you know, that doesn't happen anymore, I know, but, uh, and they came back to church, there was a tradition where you, you would have to lay in the doorway of the church and the congregation would step on you as you came in because you're no good. You're just thrown out and trampled on by men. So they took it literally. So if you would, if you would on your way out, and I'm going to call some names. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm trying up here. It's, it's tougher than it looks. But God is at work and has invited us to join Him. And so I struggled with well, what Is there an application to this? And I think the application for this, I believe the application for this, is a prayer. And the prayer sounds like this, and I I dare you to pray it. The prayer is simple. It says, fix my eyes, Lord, so that they see what you see. That's the prayer. And I dare you to pray that. I mean, can you imagine how God sees your place of work? I mean, that's where you spend most of your time. How does he see those people? And can you somehow see them in the same way, right? How does God see the school that you go to and the people? Because the school isn't a building, it's people. How does he see those students, teachers? How does he see your neighborhood? Have you ever thought about that? We challenged the connect group that I lead and uh, to do that, to just simply walk around your building or the neighborhood you live in and just to pray that prayer. And it was cool, like I kind of forgotten, because in ministry you offer a lot of suggestions and people just nod and they don't do them. 
But a couple of weeks ago, one of our uh, Connect Group people said, oh, I have a follow-up to that thing you told us to do, <laughs> which I was like, it works. Uh, but they did that very thing. We walked around the neighborhood and we prayed and we just prayed for stuff to happen. And man, I met my neighbor. That's the update. Which, what's interesting is a statement like that is so surprising in our culture because we don't, we don't know our neighbors. And so to hear, hey, I met my neighbor is like, wow, how'd you do that? I just talked to them. God, help me see what you see. Because if I can see what God sees, then I might respond in the way He wants. Or I might better understand what it means to be salt. And again, you are is not a command to follow, but it's a reminder of who you are. So if you are a follower of Jesus, and some of you are in the room, you are a missionary, period. You're a carrier of the love and the grace of God. But you might be disguised as a teacher or a mechanic or a business owner or a developer, a salesman, a marketing director, a photographer. The list goes on and on and on all the way around the room. If you are a follower of Christ, those things are merely a costume. You're a missionary. They're just here to put food on your table and to put purpose in your life and so you can make a difference with those things. But underneath those layers of what we do, We're all missionaries. Now this was risky last service, but let me just say it and try to make sense of it. There are times that I as a pastor wish I was you. Some of you are saying you don't wish that. I would say the same thing to you if you think that of me. But there are days when I think, man, it'd just be awesome to work at the coffee shop or the record store, which is about the only jobs I could get if I wasn't doing this, all right? Because when you go to seminary, your options are right here. That's it. <laughs> I can teach Bible and set up chairs. What, what do we got? But I would like to sometimes get up in the morning and go to a place of work that isn't like this, because this is where I work. And this place, everybody believes the same thing on staff. We're after the same things. We pray for each other. We pray for you. We have a set time on Wednesday where we get together as a staff and we just pray through the cards that you drop in the baskets. I mean, we really pray for those things. I'm sure that doesn't happen at your place of work. And sometimes I feel, you know, bad that that's how my life is because I know that you don't deal with that. Now, some of you might. You might be in a company or a business that allows things like that, but my guess is, for the most part, you get up and go to work on Monday and count the hours till Friday But there are times I wish that I was in that position because of my role here. It limits me of living out this reminder of being salt. And so I have to get very creative, and I'm not going to give you a list of how that looks in my life because this isn't about me, this is about us. But I do have to get very creative and intentional about not letting this thing, being salt of the earth, fade I make it a point not to get up here and to ask you to do things that I'm not doing. In fact, I just won't do sermons on certain things because I'm still trying to live that out. But trust me when I say, I'm hammering away at this all the time. And I'm just challenging you as well to think 
How is it that God sees the people in my home and in my school and in my place of work and in my neighborhood? Maybe that's all you do this week. Hey, I've lived next door to you for 10 years. What's your name? That's it. Maybe it's just that simple and maybe that's way complicated. I don't know. Turn to John 1 and we'll close with this. Just forward a couple of books. John is describing in very theological and poetic terms how God came to earth. It's the Christmas story. And he says in verse 14, the word which he's been using to describe Jesus with, the word became flesh. It's beautiful, isn't it? God put skin on and broke into human history. And he says he made his, what? Dwelling. The word is skinu. means tabernacle. It means a place where God is and worshiped. That he made his dwelling among us, not on a hill somewhere where you had to go and speak to a guy who would speak to a guy who would speak to a guy and maybe get your request in, which is how many of the other religions worked of the day. You went and saw somebody, and like the Wizard of Oz, they would take the request to the gods. But the God of the Bible came here, it says, and he made his dwelling. In other words, he put up a tent here. He built a home among us. Jesus was with people. It's why when he healed people, he didn't need to actually touch them, but he would. Why? I'm with you. I mean, if he's God, he can just say, you're healed of leprosy, but he would touch them and make sure that they knew, I'm not somewhere else, I'm here. And so when Jesus says to us, you are the salt of of the earth, he is saying, among many things, salt is no good if it's not in the places that need salt. It's just in a shaker on a table. But salt needs to be where salt is needed, and the earth needs salt. So you go and live as salt of the earth. We're going to move into communion. I'm going to pray and a couple of things for you. The tables are up front. Uh, some people have done this from last service, but we have cards on every table. If some of you weren't here last week and want to do the then and now cards, you can do that. There's marker and paper, and some people have already put theirs down here, and that's, that's fine. This is not a rushed time, uh, but essentially, if you're new with us, uh, you're invited to take part um, in the communion. There's bread and juice, and these represent uh, the body and the life of Christ, and the juice represents the blood that was poured out on the cross for you and for me, for the world. Offering baskets are on the table as well, and my challenge to you, or my encouragement anyway, is take, take your time. Uh, Lindsay's going to come and play some music and spend some time in prayer and um, and then make your way to a, a table. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I know for me it's just easy to, to imagine someone else doing it. And yet, this 
one verse speaks so clearly to each one of us, but it, it reminds me that, that, that I am this, salt of the earth, that we're all, we're all called to that. And it's a reminder of uh, your plan to work through your people and um, wake us up to that. And fix our minds on what you see. Give us the eyes to see what you see and the ears to hear what you hear. And that maybe, God, there's just uh, encouragement that we need to, uh, to be this, to be the salt of the earth in our places of work and our families and the schools and neighborhoods. All the places where we bump into people. Father, help us to see the needs Help us to hear uh, the wants. As a church, Father, I just pray for strength that you, um, that you make us in this community and in the surrounding neighborhoods that touch us and that are involved with us, that we will just continue to be salt of the earth, a very positive thing. We love you. Uh, we thank you for your son whose life was poured out for us as we take this communion. We're reminded of that. And so ignite within us a passion to pour ourselves out, to serve others, and serve you at the same time. In your name that I pray, amen.